gospel reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship from what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Beautiful day. Hopefully, you've been able to enjoy it. Uh, and it's great to be together to, be, to talk about what it means to be called. And as uh, Vicar Victor said uh, earlier, we are called to, to, to know God. And Pastor Dan talked about that last week. We know him through his word and how clearly that comes through in the person of Jesus and his love for us. And today we want to talk about how we can show that we love God. And there's many things that we could point to from our, from our actions, our words. But today we want to focus on worship. And if you went to any book in the Bible to, to know more about worship, you'd probably pick out the book of Psalms. Because so many of the Psalms are descriptive and even prescriptive of, of worship and how we go about worship and how God's people have worshiped now for for hundreds and even thousands of years. Psalm 95. You know, it's a tricky thing to talk about worship because if I went around and I asked you, What's, what do you like about worship? I'd probably get a, a lot of different answers. Worship sometimes is very, very subjective as to what's meaningful and, and what's good. Uh, I, uh, an, unno an unknown author puts it this way, some go to church to take a walk. Some go to church to laugh and talk. Some go to church to meet another. Some go to church a fault to cover. Some go to church to doze and nod. But the wise go there to worship God. And Psalm 95 is one of these beautiful psalms of praise where it's an invitation for us to worship God. The first word of Psalm 95 is come, come. And we see that there are three sections of this psalm, of this invitation, come to do different things. And the first thing that we are called to do, we are called to come and rejoice. The psalmist says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Now, let's look at some of the characteristics that are given of our joy-filled worship in Psalm 95. First of all, joy-filled worship is collective Three times in the first two verses, you hear these words, let us, okay, let us. And while we often think that worship is just between me and God, a private affair, the fact is, it's about us, the psalmist says. Our worship is as Jesus promises. He says that we're two or three, and while we don't have a lot of people here, look around, there's more than two or three, right? It's about us tonight. We are the ones who are worshiping rather than just about me. Let us. We hear God's word together. We respond in faith together. 
we hear God's, the, the message, and then we pray together. We, in a few minutes, we get, we get the opportunity to come to the altar to receive Christ and His body and blood together in this special meal that God has given to us. And not only that, but we gather with the church universal. One of the, one of the comforting things to me is that not only when we worship, not only are we meeting with just the people in this room, but we are meeting with Christians, believers all over the world who are worshiping the same Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And not only that, but we can even talk about the church universal, those who have even gone before us, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. They too worshiped just like us today. And just to think that it's going to happen for generations until the Lord comes again, that's exciting. I, I was reminded of the collective power of worship uh, when I got to know Gertrude. Gertrude was already in her mid-90s, and at this point in her life, Gertrude couldn't hear, very well at least, unless you shouted into her ear, okay? She couldn't see well enough to, to look at a bulletin or probably even the words on a screen. I don't know. We didn't have screens back then. Uh, her, you know, uh, and yet she said that, that coming to worship, as frail as she was, that was the highlight of her week. And she loved it. And she loved sitting next to families that had little kids, she said. And she just loved it when, when the kids would come up for the children's message. Uh, she, 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 she was lifted up, she said, when she heard people singing around her, even though her voice, even though, she had sung in the choir, but now her voice was gone, she said. She loved the church. And when she came out of church, this was the best part. She'd shake my hand every, every time she came. Said, Pastor, that was the best message I'd ever heard. Okay. <laughs> but that's the way Gertrude was. You see, worship isn't always just about you or just about me. And that is why in almost every one of our worship services, we say a certain prayer that has no personal pronouns. What prayer would that be? My Father who art in heaven? No, it's our Father. The perfect prayer. You know, it's okay to have your personal preferences in worship, to, to like the songs or the hymns sung the way that you like them. It's okay to have your favorite scripture readings. It's okay to have enjoyable messages where you, my heart is touched. It's okay to have children's messages that make you laugh and smile. But Lord, forgive us when our worship is so self-centered that we fail to remember the collective and the encouraging nature of worship that demonstrates God's love, not just for me, but for us, our brothers and sisters. And that's why our joyful, that's why our worship is joyful. Secondly, why is worship joyful? Because our worship is vocal. The actions that are described for praising and thanking God for what He's done are, look at this, they're vocal. Come, let us sing. Come, let us shout aloud. Come, let us extol Him with music and sound. And again, not only do we often think of worship as being private or personal, but a lot of times we think our worship is silent as well. We can worship God in our hearts or even sing quietly because we don't want to offend the people around us. But isn't it interesting here that God enjoys he loves to hear our voices. And you, you know who's the least likely to let their voices be heard in corporate worship? 
You know who it is? It's us men. Men, for the most part, don't like to sing. We don't like to, to let our voices be heard. And I was told, I've been told many times that if, if you want to grow, if you want to have a church that grows with men, just don't make them sing and don't make them feel guilty about singing. But men, we too have voices and God wants to hear our voices. Uh, it reminded me of a cute story about a man who was uh, in a church choir and he thought he could sing, but guess what? He couldn't. <laughs> and uh, others tried to help him find other places in the ministry where he could use his gifts because obviously he didn't have the gift of vocal music. And so uh, they didn't know what to do. No one wanted to talk to this guy. So finally they called the pastor. And uh, the, the choir director became so desperate, he, the music director, he told the pastor that if he didn't do something about this guy, then, that he would resign. And not only him, but he said half the choir is going to leave. Well, the pastor went and spoke to the man. And after beating around the bush for some time, he finally told the man that he really needed to, to leave the choir, resign from the choir. Well, why? asked the man. Well, the pastor said, several people have told me that you just cannot sing. The man looked straight in the eyes of the pastor and said, that's nothing. He says, at least 50 people have told me you can't preach, but you're still here. <laughs> our joyful worship, it's collective. It comes from our voices, right? Thirdly, then, our worship is vibrant. It's vigorous. Someone has said that the characteristic note of the Old Testament worship is exhilaration. Uh, the terms employed here in the psalm describe activity w uh, that would be more appropriate at a Colts football game during a winning season, right? <laughs> uh, as people are cheering and screaming and, and just letting their voices be heard, it's vibrant, it's alive. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And, and it's interesting, the Hebrew word there for shout aloud really means to raise a shout. And that was done when the Israelites often went into battle and anticipating a triumph with God's help. Shout aloud. That was the expression used when the Israelites marched around Jericho. Remember, Joshua led them at Jericho, and, and they were told to blow the trumpets as loud as they could. And then at a certain time, then all the, the Lord's people would give a loud shout. And sure enough, that's what happened. And what happened to the walls at Jericho? They came tumbling down, didn't they? Friends, I'm not sure why our worship today is not as vibrant or vigorous as we see in the Old Testament or even in other places around the world. If you go to other places around the world, Africa, even places in Central America and so forth, uh, even in Asia, their worship is, is so much more alive and vibrant. Or maybe we've just gotten into a rut. I, uh, I know that German Lutherans have a history of celebrating God's presence with what has been termed reverent joy, right? But this psalm challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges me. As God has given to us His all in His Son Jesus, the rock of our salvation, so we want to worship Him with exuberance, with, with vitality. Uh, Oswald, Oswald Chambers wrote, A joyful spirit is the nature of God in my blood. 
Worship is in our blood as God's people, and it joyfully overflows with thanksgiving for our life and our salvation. Joyful worship. Fourthly, then, uh, that kind of joyful worship is God-centered. There's something we need to be reminded about. Worship is not just about me or you. It's not about how good the band is. It's not about how entertaining the pastor's message was. Worship is always about Him, right? Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving. Let us extol Him with music and song. Henry Ward Beecher was a famous preacher in the United States at the time of the Civil War. People came from all over to hear him, especially when he was was preaching in Brooklyn, New York. One Sunday, he had to be absent from his pulpit, and so he asked his brother, Thomas Beecher, to fill in for him. And so that day, again, the place was packed. But when people started to see that Henry was not preaching and that his, his brother was preaching, they started to leave. Undisturbed, Thomas, the brother fill-in, simply said, Would those who have come to worship Henry Ward Beecher please leave? But those who have come to worship the true Almighty God may be seated. Instead of singing about how happy we are to be together or how we feel, the psalmist says, we're talking to God. We're going right to Him. As God has blessed us and come to, we, we want to come back to Him. It's our response, our joyful response to Him alone. And as we praise God together, we always do it with the cross in view, don't we? All that we do is centered in Jesus Christ and His Word so that our, our worship is Christocentric. It's Christ-centered. Jesus is in the middle of it all. He's the cornerstone, isn't He? So that all of our worship is, is built upon Him. It's centered in Him and around Him. Lastly, our rejoicing in worship happens because our worship is founded in the truth. In this psalm, the sovereignty of God's truth is given as the basis for our worship. Look at this. For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His. He made it. His hands form the dry land. We see the truth. That what we see are the beauty of what is around us, the blessings that we have, it's not an accident. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the depths, the peaks, the sea, the dry land, it's all from Him. And as we are reminded of all that God has done for us, how can we not rejoice? How can we not praise Him? Well, that's the first section, and I know that's a long one, okay? Uh, but we worship with joy. It's a call to joy. Secondly, though, in this psalm, we saw, see a call to reverence. Verse 6, the first part of verse 7, give us this invitation to respect God, to revere Him. Look at what the psalmist says. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are His people, the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Now, notice the tone change in this psalm. It goes from enthusiasm and loud and exuberant praises and songs of joy, all of a sudden now to awe-inspired reverence and humility before God. 
we are called to move from praise to prostration. Verses 1 and 2, the worshiper stands in God's presence shouting forth praises. But now in verse 6, the worshiper falls on his face before God in humility, in silence. Worship has both of those elements. It has the rejoicing, but also has the speechless awe of standing before the God who made us and who redeemed us. And not only has the mood of the psalm changed, but also the focus has changed. It's no longer God the Creator and His awesome creation who is in view, but now we revere God our Redeemer. Verse 7, for He is our God, we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. This describes a relationship with God that God has with you. As one of His dear sheep, the Lord God, He not only made you, but He loves you and He knows you. You belong to Him and He cares enough for us to bring us then under His eternal care. And whenever we talk about sheep and, 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 and shepherds and pastures, it leads us to Jesus, doesn't it? Because Jesus is the fulfillment when He says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do to prove the love that He has for His sheep? He says He lays down His life for the sheep. So that now we listen to His voice. He says, I know them. They follow me. They shall never perish. No one can ever take, snatch them out of my hand. And so like the psalmist, we are invited to stand or sit or even kneel in the awe of God and His power. And that's why there's times in our worship when we bow our heads and we silence our voices and we humbly come to God, admitting our sins and revering Him as the one who gave His life for us on the cross of Calvary. And I know this is why I was always taught in the church, that the symbol of Christ's presence in the church is where? Where is the symbol of Christ's presence? It's at the altar, isn't it? And as we approach the altar, we were taught to bow our heads. It's a sign of reverence. It doesn't have to necessarily be a useless ritual. It's something that we do when we come to communion. We come here to the foot of the cross. We acknowledge Him. We revere Him and His grace that He's poured over into our lives. So we see a call to rejoice, we see a call to revere, and thirdly then, in this psalm, we see a call to respond. From the jubilant praises of the opening verses to the call for reverence in verse 6 and 7, now we come to a solemn warning that God now speaks. He becomes the speaker. Look at verse 7. He says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did in the day of Massa in the desert. On the one hand, these words serve to conclude the first part of the psalm. At the same time, it serves as an introduction for us to respond. The Message Bible puts it this way. Drop everything and listen. Listen as God speak, speaks and don't turn a deaf ear. Essentially, what the Lord is saying here is that while God loves the praises of His people, and while we, re re we revere the truth of His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ, the bottom line is that God always calls for a response of faith. The so what? God has done this for us. Now what? 
And here the Lord recalls a couple of illustrations of, in the psalm of Israel's past history. They were not good parts of their history. The two places mentioned here, Meribah and Massa, refer back to times when the children of Israel, after being saved, after being delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, rather than giving thanks, rather than showing God that they loved Him in their worship, what did they do? They grumbled. They complained. They didn't trust God's provision for their lives. They demanded that God carry out my will and what I want rather than your will. Both of these examples reveal a common problem that we have too. Let's be honest. Every generation has had this issue. We are all prone to grumble and to test God. If we're honest, we try to manipulate God into satisfying us by doing what we want rather than what He knows is best for us. And so like Israel, our grumbling shows our lack of trust. We really don't believe that God's going to take care of us. Worship, in the wide sense, is our total response of thanksgiving of God's call in our lives. By making us in our baptism, we worship God as we respond, not just for an hour on Saturday afternoon. Our response is all of our lives, isn't it? That's why the Apostle Paul could say, I urge you in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourself all that you do as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This becomes then your spiritual act of worship. Worship is what we do when we're alone. It's what we do when we care for other people. It's what we do when we go to work. Because we're doing everything in the name of Jesus, responding to His grace. Uh, Leonard Sweet, in his book called The Aqua Church, points out that we like to sing and praise God, but we often don't want to go beyond that. He says, our pews are occupied by people who want to be moved, but who don't want to move. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's a little sign over the door in the sanctuary. And I know that it's been there more than 25 years. It was there before I got here. And look what it says. It says, enter to worship, exit to witness. It's a simple thing, isn't it? With God's help, we make our worship that which leads us to action. We don't come on Saturdays or Sundays not wanting to be moved, but with a commitment by God's grace, we want to move to respond to God as we live out our faith. John, in his first epistle, reminds us that God is love. It's his character. That's who God is. God is love. And so how do you tell the God of the universe, who already is love, that you love him? What do you do? You worship him. We worship him. We rejoice as we collectively in our hearts praise Him in new and always in vibrant ways. We do so with reverence and respect as we humbly come before Him as the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for us, the sheep. And we respond as we dedicate all that we are and all that we have to loving Him as we love others. Amen? May God bless us in our worship. Amen.